Surprise, surprise, it's Steve here with Astronomy Daily for a Thursday of all days. Yes, I found myself with a couple of moments, so I thought I might drop you all a line and do a special edition. Uh, just when, <laughs> It's just one of those weeks where I find myself with a spare hour or two. So, on with the show. It's the 17th of August to, uh, to, <laughs> 2023. Welcome aboard. With your host, Steve Dunkley. Yeah, something a bit different today. I'm going to be revisiting uh, a, a segment from our parent podcast with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson, who present the amazing Space Nuts podcast, which I'm sure most of you are aware of. And of course, with me, as always in the studio, coming in from the ether, is my fabulous companion, uh, Hallie. How are you, Hallie? Wow. Thursday. How did you swing it? Well, just lucky today. Well, you'd better get into it. I know you don't have a lot of time during the day. Yes, well, as I mentioned, we'll be catching up with uh, the boys from Space Nuts, Andrew and Fred. Hallie, what have they got for us? It's one of my favourite stories about the geysers on Enceladus. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Always. And have you got something for us, Hallie? Can you start us off? Yes, this story about SpaceX's Starship launch mishap report. Okie dokie, lead on, McDuff. SpaceX has submitted to the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration, FAA, its final report about the debut launch of its Starship vehicle, which ended with a bang four minutes after liftoff. Oh right, that was back in April and the flight was only four minutes or so, wasn't it? That's right. SpaceX launched a fully stacked Starship for the first time ever on April 20th, sending the giant rocket spacecraft combo aloft from its Starbase site in South Texas. The test flight aimed to get Starship's upper stage partway around Earth, with splashdown targeted for a patch of the Pacific Ocean near Hawaii. But that didn't happen. Starship's two stages didn't separate as planned, and SpaceX beamed up a self-destruct command, which resulted in the vehicle's detonation high above the Gulf of Mexico. The launch also caused considerable damage at Starbase, blasting out a crater beneath the site's orbital launch mount and raining chunks of concrete and other debris on the surrounding area. SpaceX soon initiated a mishap investigation, overseen by the FAA, which issues launch licenses, to determine exactly what happened on April 20th and what steps to take to boost the chances of a more successful outcome in the future. Elon Musk's company has now filed that report, but that doesn't mean Starship has been cleared to fly again. SpaceX has submitted its final mishap investigation report to the FAA for review. That review is ongoing, FAA officials said in an emailed statement. When a final mishap report is approved, it will identify the corrective actions SpaceX must make, the statement added. Separately, SpaceX must modify its license to incorporate those actions before receiving authorization to launch again. Do you like how they call it a mishap report? It sounds like someone is being naughty. Yes, like Starship gets sent to the naughty corner. How funny. But they've already installed a new water deluge system for the launch mount to dampen the immense power output of Starship's giant super heavy first stage. And they are prepping Booster 9 and an upper stage called Ship 25 for Starship's second full-up test flight. Ever the optimist, Elon Musk is hoping to have it all ready in six to eight weeks. But don't hold your breath, logistical hurdles still need to be cleared regardless of the technical progress that SpaceX has made. The FAA is still reviewing the mishap report, for example. In addition, a coalition of environmental and indigenous groups is currently suing the agency, claiming it didn't properly assess the damage that Starlink launches could cause to the South Texas ecosystem and community. And let's hear what you've got for us today, Steve. 
Now, you may have heard of, if you haven't by now, you must not be near a news service, the deadly wildfires in Hawaii. They were seen from the International Space Station uh, floating 259 miles, that's 417 kilometres above the Pacific uh, Ocean in the hard-hit town of Lahaina in Hawaii. Uh, The satellite imagery uh, captured by the International Space Station uh, on Saturday, the August 12th, shows the Hawaiian island of Maui four days after the wildfires broke out on land, and it's uh, quite devastating. The photo taken uh, as the Spaceborne uh, Laboratory orbited uh, all that way above the Pacific Ocean as of Wednesday, that's uh, August 16, the death toll on Hawaii's catastrophic fires uh, rose above 100. Shortly above the confirmation of this figure, uh, Governor Josh Green addressed the public saying that we are heartsick that we've had such loss. And not only this devastation being deeply felt and thoroughly documented around the world, especially because it emphasises a deadly consequence of human-driven climate change, but also being recorded from space. Uh, Yes, the ISS sees all. And uh, if you would like to go to space.com and have a look at the photograph, it's just a mass of cloud and... uh, uh, it's most definitely devastating, and uh, and closer to the ground, there's uh, plenty of people doing drone uh, overflies of the uh, affected areas, and it's uh, very upsetting to look to look at. Uh, so it's uh, no surprise that our space-born observatories are seeing that uh, in the way that they are. You're listening to Astronomy Daily, the podcast with Steve Dunning. Thanks again for tuning in. Uh, This is Astronomy Daily on the 17th of August 2023. And don't forget, you can catch all the back editions of Astronomy Daily and Space Nuts at Bytes.com and also uh, on anywhere you uh, check out podcasts nowadays. We're on all of them. So uh, the good news is that uh, as of yesterday, we uh, received word that we are the number four. Astronomy Daily is the number four podcast in the Astronomy Top 100 charts. So thank you very much for supporting this uh, uh, podcast. We are extremely chuffed and and proud to uh, be presenting you with all the stories that have come across our desk. Uh, So we'll continue doing that. And uh, please drop us a line and uh, let us know what's happening in your skies. Do that on the podcast um, uh, page, which is uh, (laughs) Space Nuts podcast group on Facebook. Uh, we, we're there. Everyone's there. You'll you'll uh, find Tim Gibbs, uh, who uh, presents uh, mainly Fridays. Uh, Steve Dunkley, that's me, mainly f- Mondays, even though it's Thursday today. And you'll find Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson um, floating around on those pages. And uh, if you've got a, a question that you'd like to pose, by all means, Anything to do with uh, astronomy, space, science, and stuff. Uh, one of us will get back to you, and uh, we'd love to start a discussion, but especially we'd love to find out what's happening in your skies. Thanks again, everybody, for your support. Now onto something a little bit more, I don't know, mechanical. A robot with expandable Uh, appendages could explore Martian caves and cliffs of all things. Plenty of areas in the solar system are interesting for scientific purposes but hard to access by traditional rovers. Uh, Some of the most prominent uh, are the caves and cliffs of Mars. 
which reminds me of some of these stories that I used to read of read when I was a kid, uh, where exposed strata could hold clues to whether life ever existed on the red planet. And who didn't know that they were going to say that next? So far, none of the missions sent there have been able to uh, explore these difficult-to-reach places, but a mission concept from a team at Stanford hopes to change all that. The concept known as ReachBot. Boy, they're going to have to employ somebody to come up with some better names. Maybe me. Is a robot that can support itself using multiple articulated appendages to navigate terrain that would be difficult to reach using other navigational techniques. In addition to being able to traverse complex ground patterns, it could also, in theory, at least scale sheer cliff faces. It was initially pitched as a NASA's Institute for Advanced Concept project where it was awarded phase one grant back in 2021. The authors described the idea as a fusion of two separate techniques developed for different purposes, mobile manipulation robots and deployable space structures. Uh, mobile manipulation robots are, are relatively common in space exploration. Platforms like Robonaut and Lemur utilise robot technology to perform tasks like maintaining the ISS and inspecting other space habitats. habitats. However, much of their mobility is limited. Efforts like Lemur pride themselves on being able to navigate tricky terrain, but even if uh, even it would have difficulty scaling a cliff face. So we'll wait and see how these robots actually face up, even if they do get to Mars. Let's hope. I like robots. Well, that goes without saying. And now here's one of my favorite segments from a past episode of Space Nuts featuring Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Steve, go put the kettle on. Right. This first story I find really exciting because um, there's a lot of attention being paid to Enceladus for all sorts of reasons, um, notwithstanding the potential for life. But uh, these incredible geysers that have been recorded previously have been seen again, this time by the James Webb Space Telescope. Yeah, so this is really quite exciting news and it um, highlights once again the the capabilities of the James Webb Telescope as uh, as a tool for science that's sort of par excellence. Mm. Um, it's uh, the um, observations have been made of Saturn's moon Enceladus. Now, we haven't yet seen those observations, uh, so I haven't seen any images, and that's probably partly because uh, the research paper that's describing this work is still pending, so it hasn't yet appeared in the scientific press. Uh, and I guess the people who are responsible for it uh, are essentially, uh, uh, you know, keeping their powder dry uh, to, uh, uh, to 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 basically um, stop, uh, you know, stop the, um, the 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 media getting hold of it before they've actually published it. Yeah, that happens. Uh, uh, it, it, which it which does happen, and you know that as a media person. <laughs> I've never done it myself. <laughs> Gosh. Ne never, well, never break an embargo. Break an embargo, no. And uh, I have to say, I have neither, because I get all these things that are embargoed. Mm. And I too don't uh, break them just because it's uh, the wrong thing to do. So uh, yes, I think that's what's happening there. But this is uh, scientists at the Goddard Space Flight Center uh, who have presented these results actually at a conference 
um, in uh, the Space Telescope Science Institute, which is in Baltimore, place I visited a long time ago. So, uh, going back to the matter in hand, uh, Saturn's moon Enceladus, we've known since the flybys of the Cassini spacecraft uh, in the early 2000s. Yeah. I think it was as early as 2005 that the uh, the, the, the ice plumes being emitted from Enceladus's south pole uh, uh, have been were discovered then. Uh, in fact, what first hit the headlines, I don't know whether you remember this, because I'm sure you, you and I talked about it, but there were these things near the south pole of Enceladus, which were markings that were described as tiger stripes, because oh, yes, uh, they, right. they, do, they do look a bit like tiger stripes. Yeah. And then it was discovered that, that there were actually cracks through which... Um, what probably started off as water, but as soon as it hit the vacuum of space, became ice crystals. Mm. And that's what were being observed by the Cassini spacecraft. And in fact, Cassini made several uh, passes Good. through those ice crystals so that using today. the equipment that it had on board, it could detect some of the chemicals Over that were in, the were in them, uh, principally H2O, so water there, but also molecular hydrogen. And I think some silicates as well were detected, which... Um, tended to uh, give you the uh, insight that the water that was underneath the ice had been in contact with rock before it was spat out uh, to, to form the ice crystals. And the molecular hydrogen was interpreted as being possibly um, symptomatic of the fact that there were these um, deep... Um, um, well, it'll come to me in a minute. Uh, the, the 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 black smokers—that's the yes. expression I was looking for—down uh, on the floor of Enceladus's ocean, the subice ocean, that there were um, basically hydrothermal vents in the ocean floor. So um, that was all very exciting. But of course, with Cassini's mission coming to, coming to an end in 2017, all that stopped, and so further research was not possible until now, Yay. Uh, when the James Webb Telescope has been directed at Enceladus. And, and they've kind of hit pay dirt because they've uh, discovered a, a, an ice plume that is far bigger than any of the ones that were observed by Enceladus. And that sort of makes you wonder why that might be. Is there a, a, you know, one of the cracks, one of the tiger stripes has opened up a bit to allow more water through? Or uh, is it something to do with the gravitational pull of Saturn? What's happening here? And so that's one of the things that is being studied at the moment. Uh, apparently this ice plume extended quite a lot further than the diameter of Enceladus itself, which yes. is 500 kilometers. Yeah, that's one, uh, that's one of the things they've discovered um, as a consequence of this observation is how big these geysers are. Yeah, and this, the, I, I remember um, from the, that time an image of Enceladus which uh, was taken when El Enceladus was backlit, so the sun today. was behind Enceladus. Yeah. But I... you could see that there, the plumes of stuff that were coming off Enceladus were actually feeding into Saturn's E-ring. The E-ring is one of the diffuse rings outside the, you know, the, the main ring system. And that was great because that answered the puzzle of where the E-ring came from. It actually comes from uh, ice crystals that, uh, yeah, that, that, that are generated by Enceladus. So all that's sort of backstory. But we, now we have these new observations. And in principle, we've got a new way uh, of, of uh, you know, investigating these things because... Uh, 
the James Webb is equipped with uh, very sensitive infrared detectors, spectrometers and things of that sort, it's possible that we might get some new insights into what chemical elements and perhaps even molecules are contained within those ice plumes. Uh, although I think um, the, uh, uh, the, the, um, you know, the, 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 the bottom line really in the end is going to be sending a spacecraft to Enceladus. Yes. Um, the, just um, going back to what we knew these jets contained, We've got uh, uh, quite a, a big list in addition to the ones that I mentioned earlier. Methane, carbon dioxide and ammonia. And these are, of course, all organic uh, uh, mole molecules, molecules containing carbon. And, and, uh, and babelfish. Uh, probably babelfish as well, yes. Uh, if you need to translate from... Um, you know, one language to another. Mm. Uh, anyway, it, you know, it could be, it, it might be even more exciting than Babelfish, is that, if anything like that could be possible. Yes. Uh, because that methane could turn out to be uh, from methanogenic organisms. We don't know that. But all of this st still highlights uh, uh, Enceladus as a, as a fantastic target for um, further exploration. And a couple of things come to mind there. Uh, a, a mission which is proposed called the Enceladus Orbilander, and uh, the, that name tells you what it's going to do. It will orbit uh, the moon uh, if, it, if this goes ahead for about six months, uh, and actually flying through those ice, uh, ice plumes, and then land and look at the exact details of the surface. Um, it probably would not uh, try and penetrate the the ice, though. That's the province of a of one that you and I have spoken about before. Yes, um, uh, something called eel, which is a bit like an eel. Some something called a snake robot. Uh, eel is an acronym for Exobiology Extant Life Surveyor, mm. uh, or eels actually. And uh, one of the brains, uh, one of the um, principal, um, you know, boffins behind that is uh, Linda Spilker, who was with us a few years ago to, the, to give the Alison Levick lecture. Lecture The uh, uh, Linda Spilker being the Cassini, the Cassini mission scientist, so very, very well equipped to propose new missions, and I think Eels was one of the ones she was involved with. Yeah, if that doesn't work, of course, the, uh, the backup mission is the Black & Decker mission, which... <laughs> 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 yes, that's right. Or if you really need it, the uh, the uh, JCB or the Caterpillar mission with uh, <laughs> the heavy lifting stuff. Yes. Or the Ryobi mission, any of those, yes. any of those that can drill. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. Uh, if, you go, if you go with Ryobi, you, you, you only need one set of batteries and that's right. refit all your different... That's yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. I actually had a... Um, uh, I've got a Ryobi leaf blower and um, the, the leaf blower died before the battery did. Oh, yeah. that's interesting. It is, isn't it? Quite yeah. surprised. Ours is still, ours yeah. is still very much alive. But being tall, I have to have mm. a cardboard tube on the end to yeah. extend it down to uh, blow away the leaves. Anyway, that's a different story. It is indeed. I, I <laughs> must say, um, whoever thought of Encel Enceladus or Belanda, yeah. I mean, gee, come on, couldn't you come up with something better than that? I, th I think in the end it would have uh, would have a nicer name. But yeah, I, like you, I'm finding this really exciting that yeah. the web telescope now can can turn its uh, very substantial capabilities onto a moon like enceladus 
um, certainly nowhere near the same resolution as we had from uh, from the Cassini mission, but lots to find out nevertheless. Yes, and, and there's so much attention being paid to Enceladus and its um, similar cousin of Jupiter, which is, I'm stretching to remember the name of it. Hang on, hang on. Come on, come on, come on. Think, think beginning with T. <laughs> yes, T-I. No. No. Texas Instruments. No, uh, <laughs> TI is uh, is Titan. Oh, I wasn't thinking of that. I was thinking of oh, yeah. the other ice. Oh, uh, this this. Uh, oh, well, Titan's definitely an ice moon. But yeah. Other notion. I mean, there are the other ice moons that we really know a lot about are Europa, Ganymede, Europa, Callisto. Yes, around mm. uh, around Jupiter. Yes. Um, right all all prime candidates for t- potential life. Yeah. Exactly. What yeah. kind of life we don't know, but if we can get up there and find it and study it and see what it's made up of and whether or not it's the same stuff as us, that would be really interesting. Exactly, because if we found life there, uh, living organisms there, it would suggest that wherever you've got the raw materials for life and uh, the right environment, you're going to get it. Mm. Um, and interesting it stuff. Cha- change the answer to the Drake equation. Uh, that's correct. It would, yeah, would indeed. And that, yeah. We're all hoping for that. Right. The the Drake equation, though, um, well, it would it certainly puts one further input into the Drake equation. Drake equation. Point. It doesn't give you the answer because that's all about intelligent life. Yes. Uh, uh, it would be astonishing though if we found vertebrates or something with some kind of intelligence. I keep saying it. I keep saying it. Krill. Krill. Yeah, that's right. That's hyper-intellectual krill. Hypies. I'm sure they're out there somewhere. Well, you heard it first. Hyper-intelligent krill. That's what we can look forward to. (laughs) Thanks for joining us on Astronomy Daily. This has been a special edition for Thursday because I escaped the bump and grind of my usual day. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Uh, Looking forward to seeing you. Don't forget Tim Gibbs on Friday, Steve Dunkley on Mondays. And if we can swing it, there'll be more of the same. And uh, thanks for joining us and making us number four globally for the Astronomy Top 100. This has been Astronomy Daily for another day. See you next time. Astronomy Daily, the podcast. With your host, Steve Dunkley.